This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Functional dyspepsia, also known as non-ulcer dyspepsia, represents a chronic upper GI symptoms of indigestion and not infrequently abdominal discomfort. Diagnosing functional dyspepsia can be challenging since there are really no definitive diagnostic tests. This often results in patients seeking multiple medical opinions, searching for a specific cause and treatment for their symptoms. What are the common presenting symptoms of functional dyspepsia? What's an appropriate evaluation? And how do we treat our patients who have it? We'll discuss these questions and more with Dr. David Congemi, a gastroenterologist from the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Welcome, David, and thank you for joining me. Thanks, Gerald. Thank you for having me. Well, Pleasure to be here. By, yeah, let's start by asking you to describe the typical or somewhat classic symptoms of functional dyspepsia. I know that's quite a variation, but what are the typical symptoms? Right. So I think it actually took me a, a long time in fellowship to understand what dyspepsia really referred to. It's kind of this conglomerate of symptoms that it can be nonspecific and ill-defined at times. But as with all disorders of gut-brain interaction, we diagnose functional dyspepsia and define functional dyspepsia based on the Rome 4 criteria consensus. And so what this describes is really bothersome postprandial fullness, early satiety, epigastric pain or burning can be symptoms of bloating and nausea as well. And the symptoms, there has to be some element of chronicity to the symptoms. So they have to be present for at least the last three months with an onset of, of six months or more. So it's really some really bothersome upper GI symptoms that define dyspepsia. Do we know how common this is? I, mean, I see a fair amount of it, so it must be relatively common. It's quite common. There's a meta-analysis, I think, that came out almost 10 years ago now and estimating the prevalence of uninvestigated dyspepsia. And by that, meaning that these patients had typical for GI symptoms of dyspepsia, which we mentioned, without an upper endoscopy. And, and they estimated that the prevalence of uninvestigated dyspepsia was around 20% worldwide. When you look at the U.S. in particular, and you use different criteria, specifically the Rome criteria, that prevalence has been estimated to be about 10 to 12%. So that 10 to 12% number is, is typically what you'll see in the literature, especially related to the U.S. population. So quite common, if you think about one in 10 people that you see in the grocery store or on the street having functional dyspepsia. How does the U.S. compare to other countries? Do we have more or less of this than, uh, than others? Yeah, so in that same meta-analysis, there was an array of different prevalence percentages if you look at different countries. Now, you have to take that with a grain of salt because most of our data comes from the U.S., Northern Europe, Southeast Asia. We have few studies from South America, Africa, et cetera. But they did find that in some areas, like South America, for example, the rate of dyspepsia could be as high as 35%. But again, that's in the context of not having a lot of data. And some of this may depend on different risk factors, which I think we'll talk about later. H. pylori, helicobacter pylori, especially has been recognized as a, as a risk factor for functional dyspepsia. So different areas of the country, the prevalence of, of that in particular is a bit higher. But we don't really know exactly. Again, it, more data would be helpful, but there probably is a range of prevalences when you look at the, the global population. Mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned risk factors. Let's talk about that. Are some individuals more likely to have 
functional dyspepsia than others? Absolutely. There are a few well-established risk factors. Even though we don't understand functional dyspepsia entirely, there's still a lot of important questions that we'd like to answer. It has been pretty well recognized that female sex, smoking, use of NSAIDs or non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, and H. pylori, as I mentioned, are are pretty well-recognized risk factors for functional dyspepsia. Also, having an acute gastrointestinal illness, such as gastroenteritis, can predispose some people to having functional dyspepsia. So a common story is someone goes on a trip abroad, they become ill with a gastrointestinal illness, knowledge of vomiting and diarrhea, and they come back, they recover from that illness, but thereafter, their gut quite doesn't feel the same. And similar to how people can develop post-infectious IBS or bowel syndrome, there certainly is a number of patients who develop functional dyspepsia as a result of an acute illness. Yeah, that's rather interesting because a lot of the risk factors you described are the same as those for functional bowel disorder. Are, are these two related? Definitely. And I think one other point about that in, in terms of, of risk factors is in addition to risk factors, there's also, I think, a number of different psychological factors which can affect symptoms. So ongoing stress, anxiety, depression, things that we frequently see in other disorders of gut-brain interaction like irritable bowel syndrome can also augment symptoms and affect how one presents the clinic. But to answer that question specifically, there definitely is a recognized overlap between functional dyspepsia and irritable bowel syndrome. So I think one meta-analysis in particular showed that patients with functional dyspepsia are eight times more likely to have irritable bowel syndrome. And, and the overlap between these two different disorders has been described somewhere in the range of 15 to 40%, depending on which diagnostic criteria was used in the study. So a significant overlap between the, these two disorders, which and may not necessarily be totally unexpected as disorders of gut-brain interaction. These sorts of disorders don't necessarily respect boundaries within the gut. And so if you have a disorder of gut-brain interaction affecting the upper GI tract, like functional dyspepsia, you may be more prone to having the same sort of issues in lower GI tracts, such as IBS. I imagine that there's no known cause for this, as there isn't for functional bowel disorder. Is that that's correct? Correct. To some degree, there are certain pathophysiologic factors that we've recognized that are more common in functional dyspepsia. So for example, about a third of patients with functional dyspepsia may have impaired gastric accommodation. That's the ability of the upper part of the stomach to relax after eating. About a third of patients may also have mild delays in stomach emptying, and that may perhaps contribute to symptoms. There are certain pathophysiologic mechanisms, and there's a lot of research being done looking at the small intestine, the duodenum, and specifically, there's been some some recent literature describing inflammation in, in the duodenum, increased amounts of eosinophils, mast cells. There's new data that suggests that maybe there's increased intestinal permeability within the duodenum in patients with functional dyspepsia. So there's a number of pathophysiologic mechanisms that have been identified that uh, may also play a role in symptom generation, but we really don't have a complete understanding of functional dyspepsia. And I think, as with many disorders of gut-brain interaction, I think a lot, personally, I think a lot of symptom generation can be attributed to, at least in part, the idea of visceral hypersensitivity or, and, and central hypersensitivity. So the idea that how the nerves and the gut send signals to the brain, how the brain accepts those signals and processes those signals that changes in patients with functional dyspepsia and those sorts of disorders. So it's kind of in the family of fibromyalgia in terms of that hypersensitivity. Yeah, the, the idea that for some reason, the nerves in the gut 
send distress signals of pain or fullness or nausea or bloated. And there isn't really an identifiable organic reason for that, which is frustrating for patients and providers alike. These patients will often go through a battery of tests, many of which are essentially normal or non-diagnostic, and it creates a dilemma and it's, just, it's a stressful situation. And the idea is that even though the, the gut looks normal and appears to function normal as far as our testing shows, that perhaps the, the deep intrinsic nerves in the gut aren't functioning normally and they're sending signals that should not be sent and the brain is perhaps processing those signals differently. It's kind of an abstract concept. It's difficult to explain to patients. And of course, there's no way currently that we can test for that in clinical practice, but that's an idea. It's kind of the general hypothesis behind a lot of these disorders of gut-brain interaction. Are there any foods that patients say typically reliably bring on symptoms? So it's a great question because I think that many of the patients that I see in clinic often come to me and they'll, they'll mention, even without me asking, they'll mention different sorts of foods that they've tried to cut out from their diet to affect their symptoms. And, and oftentimes they haven't been able to find a specific food trigger for their symptoms. And the short answer is that this has been looked at. There's at least one extensive meta-analysis that I know of that's looked at the relationship between food and functional dyspepsia. And there isn't really a clear association between food and, and functional dyspepsia. There are some studies which have identified fats may be a trigger. And if you think about it, that makes some pathophysiologic sense because fats can decrease stomach emptying and, and take longer to empty from the stomach into the small intestine. And that perhaps may trigger symptoms. But there isn't really a smoking gun there as far as diet. One thing that probably worth mentioning is gluten is, is very much in vogue and related to IBS and other sorts of disorders. And we really have limited evidence as far as what gluten does with respect to functional dyspepsia. And there's a thought that perhaps it's a, the low FODMAP diet, which is also in vogue as it relates to irritable bowel syndrome, which contains gluten, gluten's a high FODMAP food, maybe that reduction in those sorts of foods helps with symptoms. So long story short is we don't really have enough evidence right now to recommend a gluten-free diet for patients with functional dyspepsia. Okay. So we're sitting in our office with a patient and we suspect functional dyspepsia. What questions should we ask and what red flag symptoms are we looking for that might suggest something else? So I think the history is really critical, again, especially with these sorts of disorders like functional dyspepsia, because understand there is no specific test, blood test, endoscopic finding, imaging finding that's going to help you make the diagnosis. The diagnosis is really made clinically based on the symptoms we talked about earlier, according to the Rome 4 criteria. So getting a good history, understanding their symptoms, understanding how long they've had the symptoms, what makes the symptoms better or worse, are they meal-related? As far as alarm symptoms, symptoms that may prompt me to be more apt to performing an upper endoscopy or imaging or blood testing would be, of course, unintentional weight loss. That's always something that I ask. That gets tricky because, and we can delve into this later if we have time, but there's there's been recognition that eating disorders, restricted food intake and, and eating disorders in particular, patients with functional dyspepsia are, are prone for that. That question can be a little bit tricky and lead down a different path, but certainly unintentional Weight loss would lead to further testing. Anemia, anyone that has excessive vomiting, vomiting blood, blood in the stools, 
those are sorts of warning signs that I think of in my head that might warrant endoscopic evaluation or imaging. You mentioned anemia. So there are some blood tests we probably should order, CBC being one. Are there others that may be helpful? There aren't any that are hard and fast rules that you need to absolutely order. But I, I will say if a patient has not had a CBC or a comprehensive metabolic panel within the last six months or so, I'll often order labs. Assessing for H. pylori, I think, is really important in the evaluation process, whether that's done through an endoscopy or it can also be done non-invasively through a stool test or a breath test. It's another lab study, if you will, that I will think about ordering. Aside from that, I don't find that there are any other labs that I will routinely order. I will sometimes think about ordering thyroid studies in someone that has knowledge of predominant symptoms just to be sure that their thyroid function is appropriate. Those are really the, the labs that I tend to order most often in the, in the dyspepsia evaluation. Okay. Let's talk about an upper endoscopy. Do you order that only when there are some red flag symptoms or do patients with classic functional dyspepsia deserve an upper endoscopy? Yeah. So we, fortunately we have guidelines published recently to help with this question a bit. I think, as you mentioned, if someone has red flag symptoms, they're almost always going to almost always deserve an upper endoscopy if they have not had one before. The guidelines from the ACG, American College of Gastroenterology, suggest that in a patient who's less than 60 without alarm symptoms, if they present with classic dyspepsia symptoms, they do not necessarily need an upper endoscopy to make a confident diagnosis in functional dyspepsia. I will tell you in practice, that's a bit difficult to do. If I have a 45, 50-year-old patient presenting with dyspeptic symptoms, if, even if they don't have red flag symptoms, if they've never had an upper endoscopy before, I have a hard time not ordering an upper endoscopy. Now, that being said, the yield of the upper endoscopy is quite low. I think it's important to recognize that. The chances you're going to find a cancer or celiac disease or significant erosive esophagitis, I think is pretty low, and there's data to support that. Overall, you know, the risk of an upper endoscopy, when you look at complications of bleeding, uh, perforation, et cetera, is also exceedingly low. So I, I do, it's a struggle. It's always a case-by-case -case individual basis, but I do sometimes perform upper endoscopies if, if one has bothersome symptoms and they never had an upper endoscopy before. Okay. Typically, many of these patients will go from provider to provider, or institution to institution, looking for someone to tell them exactly what they have. Some come away thinking, well, my provider told me it's all in my head. Have you found anything that you can tell a patient that satisfies them and we can move on to treatment? It's, it's a great question because this comes up all the time. Many of the patients that I see in clinic, I've seen at least one, sometimes two, three, four, five different gastroenterologists in the past. And you would think that the more testing they undergo, the more gastroenterologists they see, that perhaps the more reassured they would be that there's nothing wrong per se. I think that's some, true for some people, but oftentimes for other people, they become more frustrated by, by that sort of process. And so I spend a lot of time trying to first acknowledge their symptoms, recognize that I understand that they are bothered by their symptoms, that they're suffering in some sense. They, they wouldn't be here if they weren't. And we talk a lot about the brain-gut connection, the brain-gut access, the concepts of both central and visceral hypersensitivity to try to explain 
to them as best I can that their symptoms are real, but they don't seem to be generated by any organic abnormality. That doesn't make them any less real. That just means that we need to think a little bit outside the box in terms of how we approach their symptoms. I think it's also helpful to give them a diagnosis. I think to tell a patient confidently, you have functional dyspepsia. Functional dyspepsia is very common. You are not alone. It affects about 10% of the population. There are millions of people out there with functional dyspepsia. Granted, there's certainly a spectrum of disease severity. Making a diagnosis, telling them what they have, that can also sometimes help move on to treatment and help people to kind of accept their situation. And then we move on to talk about how we're going to tackle it. Okay. Well, let's talk about treatment. Where do you start and what's the path that you use to try uh, management? Another great question. I think it's incredible to me that despite how common functional dyspepsia is, we don't have any FDA-approved medications for functional dyspepsia at the moment, which is pretty staggering when you think about how many people have functional dyspepsia currently. You know, everything's off-label. And so we, but we talk about all the different treatment options. I try to get a sense of how people want to tackle their symptoms. Diet, some people really only want to focus on diet. And I think that's okay for the people that have mild symptoms. We talk about looking at maybe a low-fat diet, eating smaller meals more frequently. We talk about the low FODMAP diet, even though there's limited data for the low FODMAP diet in the functional dyspepsia world as opposed to the IBS world, gluten-free diet, those sorts of things. I think for the people that have moderate to severe symptoms, I think these sorts of patients, I often try to steer towards a neuromodulator, a medication that perhaps might kind of quiet these overly sensitive nerves in the gut. So there is some data. If you look at it, going back to the ACG guidelines again, you look at kind of the, what are the first steps? Well, again, we talked about assessing for H. pylori and treating for H. pylori if positive. That's certainly something that should be done. And if they have an upper endoscopy, often we'll, we'll do gastric biopsies to be sure that they don't have H. pylori. If that's off the table, if they don't have H. pylori, which is uncommon here in the U.S., a proton pump inhibitor can be used. There is some data to, to suggest that some analyses that suggest that proton pump inhibitors are more effective than placebo, but the, the gain isn't great. And a lot of patients that I see in my clinic have tried a proton pump inhibitor because GERD or gastroesophageal reflux disease, those symptoms can often overlap with functional dyspepsia as well. So if they try to put a proton pump inhibitor and failed, then we move on and, and then we get to the neuromodulators. When we talk about neuromodulators, we're talking about antidepressants. I don't like to use that terminology in clinic because I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm a gastroenterologist, and I'm using these medications not to treat depression or anxiety. I'm using, using them for their nerve-changing properties. And so there's not an abundance of data out there, but there is some data suggesting that tricycline antidepressants, mirtazapine, buspirone are certain neuromodular medications that have been shown to be beneficial in treating functional dyspepsia. And we can talk a little bit about the details of that if you'd like. Well, when we've got patients that we recommend pharmacologic therapy, how long should we have them on treatment before we have them stop it? My practice is, it's difficult. It, it's not necessarily that everyone with dyspepsia is going to respond to a tricyclic antidepressant. I try to think about what's the major symptom here. Is it is abdominal pain or is it nausea? And for example, tricyclic antidepressants or TCAs have decent pain-reducing properties. And so if it's a pain-predominant symptom, I'll use a TCA. If it's more nausea-predominant or, or fullness or early satiety-predominant symptom, I'll tend to gravitate towards mirtazapine or buspirone, thinking that they may actually help with, with those symptoms more. I will always start with the lowest dose, usually individual neuromodulator, and then I will slowly increase the dose over time, uh, making changes every week or two weeks. 
until we hopefully reach an effective dose. Or if we reach a point where I feel like we're treating the patient with a, a reasonable dose and they're not responding, then I will then pivot and maybe we'll try a different neuromodulator. If they gain some improvement in their symptoms and they're happy and they're satisfied, I like to treat for six to 12 months. There's, that's not a hard and fast rule. There's not much data to support that, but I like to treat for six to 12 months and then we reassess things. And if they feel like they want to, at that time, come off the neuromodular, try to wean off or take the training wheels off, so to speak, of the nerves, and then we can try to do that. And sometimes we're successful in weaning them off the medication. I tell them importantly that this does not need to be a lifelong medication. Certainly there are some people that are just thrilled that they feel better and they're not as keen to wean off the neuromodular. That's okay too. It can be, it can be used longer. It really is patient dependent. Does functional dyspepsia tend to resolve with time? It can. Unfortunately, it's a limited data to describe the chronicity of functional dyspepsia, but the data we do have suggests that at least 50% or so remains symptomatic over five years. So I do tell some patients that theoretically, we don't necessarily have to do anything. They don't have anything sinister going on within their gastrointestinal tract that's going to affect their longevity, but oftentimes doing nothing is not acceptable to patients because they're in your clinic for a reason. They're, they're bothered by their symptoms. The post-infectious functional dyspepsia, that may perhaps resolve faster in time. That can get better in time. Is that a month, two months, a year? Again, it's variable and it's hard to predict. So not everyone with functional dyspepsia, I think it's an important point, not everyone with functional dyspepsia is destined to have those symptoms for life, but it does seem to be a, a chronic condition for, for most patients. Well, David, you've given us a lot of information about functional dyspepsia. Can you summarize our discussion maybe with two or three key points? Sure. And thank you again for having me. I, I will say that I think this is a very important topic. When we talk about brain-gut disorders, uh, the first point is that functional dyspepsia, I think, is under-recognized, under-diagnosed in, in clinical practice. It's essentially as common as irritable bowel syndrome. I find that most common patients tend to have heard of, of irritable bowel syndrome, but not functional dyspepsia. So I think first recognition of how common this is as a disorder is really important, especially when you consider that these people are often suffering and looking for a diagnosis and looking for direction. So I think for clinicians who are perhaps listening, I think the importance of understanding what, what functional dyspepsia is and perhaps being more ready to make that sort of diagnosis in clinic if, if applicable. I think the other major point would be, even though functional dyspepsia is incompletely understood, I think we're making progress in understanding what causes symptoms. As I mentioned, looking at the duodenum, evidence of inflammation, perhaps intestinal permeability. I think there's the real potential for the development of biomarkers in the future, whether that's looking at intestinal permeability or the microbiome we didn't talk about. Maybe the third point is that we do have treatments, even though there aren't any FDA-approved treatments currently, we do have the ability to treat symptoms, and whether that be with diet or neuromodulators. Another important category, which we didn't talk about today, would be the psychologic-based therapy. So things like cognitive behavioral therapy, hypnotherapy, treatments that don't involve traditional medicines, there's evolving data that these sorts of therapies may be helpful for functional dyspepsia. I think we as clinicians need to be more embracing of those sorts of therapies and ready to use them in patients. And one last thing that I'll mention in our group, we are interested in, in virtual reality. We have a small pilot study, which we'll be publishing soon, where we use virtual reality to treat functional dyspepsia and saw some pretty exciting results. And so we're going to be investigating that more. So I think 
it's a very exciting time in this sort of realm in terms of, of making a diagnosis, understanding the disorder, and then hopefully having more treatment options, including non-medicine-based treatment options in the future for patients. We've been discussing functional dyspepsia with Dr. David Kanjemi, a gastroenterologist from the Mayo Clinic. David, thank you so much for sharing your time to discuss this really challenging syndrome. Thank you so much for having me again. Really enjoyed it. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.